There we go. Thank you. Thank you for bearing with me, church. So again, my main points are as follows. Church and state each have their own place in God's design. Then second, those who seek to interfere with the church usually have some sort of agenda. And third, understanding God's design for the state helps it and the church to function properly. And this is again drawing from Acts chapter 18, verses 12 through 17. So now that we have everything recorded, let's see, take a step back and look at the historical context behind this scripture. What's happening in the time that this is being written? So in the historical context, we've seen that this is Paul's, like according to a biblical account, this is Paul's second missionary journey, which lasted from about 49 to 52 AD. And that's very important because that's going to be the last full journey that Paul will make in a complete circle. His third missionary journey, and this fourth, will actually be one way. So we're seeing the second main thing that's happening is, we, as we saw well, a couple last week or so, that this is the, during the time of Emperor Claudius, when mentions that he was, in the earlier scriptures, when he was, he, he commanded all the Jews to depart Rome. This is about two, this takes about two to be about three or so years before Emperor Claudius's death. Claudius was part of the Julio, like Julio-Claudian dynasty, that is, he was one of the first five emperors, and it's after his time that we'll see the persecution of the church really start to, to, to intensify and be more centralized. So we're seeing this, so this kind of persecution is more, more sporadic among the Jews, and now we're going to see this is almost before the Roman persecution begins. This will be a great time of testing for the church, and it'll be time when the church really starts to grow. So then looking more specifically at the, at the verses, verses 12 through 13 speak of, like Paul, speak of Gallio being a proconsul of Achaia. And people are wondering, well, where in the world is Achaia? Well, it's basically, if you look at a map, it's going to be a, it's going to be a large, almost like an island-like projection of land joined to the main part of, the, of Greece by a narrow peninsula. And this is a, or it's a province and region of southern Greece. So it's a rather large area, and then Gallio is the government official who's in charge of it. He was only, he says he was proconsul, that's his official title, and Gallio was, according to a historical record, the government official from 51 to 52 AD. So Paul being brought before him is during the very midst of his term in office, and so Gallio is the Roman official who's going to be in charge of punishing crimes, hearing legal cases, in many ways like a mayor today. So we see now the Jews are the ones who are bringing Paul and accusing him before the Roman judgment seat. This is actually, ironically, uh, something that we've heard before in Scripture. For those who are familiar with the account of Jesus' trial, this is exactly what happened when the Jews brought, brought him before Pontius Pilate. And we'll see, we'll come to compare and contrast how Pilate and Gallio kind of address things. So let's see, the, they, say, mentioned that, they also mentioned that there's a, uh, a trial before Stephen in Acts chapter 6, where they level similar accusations against Paul as, that Stephen was accused of in chapter 6, verse says 11 through 14. Mention them about, if I can return that real quickly. Six, chapter 6. Ah, so 11 through 14, where it mentions that they secretly induced men to say, We have heard him speak blasphemous words against Moses and God. And they stood at the people, the elders, the scribes, and they came upon him, seized him, and brought him to the council. They set up false witnesses who said, "This man does not speak to, this does not cease to speak blasphemous words against this holy place and against the law. 
We've heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth, Nazareth will destroy this place and change the customs to Moses delivered to us. So, and it seems rather ironic now that Paul was there when Stephen was being accused, and now he's the one in, in, the, in the defendant's chair. But they do say that God has a great sense of humor, and Paul will now be the one defending, defending the very faith that he was opposing once before his conversion. So now they hope to, uh, so now the Jews are bringing him up on charges, which will also occur later on in Acts chapter 21, when he is again accused in Jerusalem and brought before Roman officials again. So this will be a rather interesting, it's an interesting kind of rep- repetitive attack on Christianity, especially on Paul's ministry. Okay, but then we see, that the, how, now we see how Gallio will respond. In verses 14, he mentions, when Paul was about to open his mouth, Gallio says, if it was a matter of wrongdoing or wicked crimes, O Jews, that there would be reason why I should bear with you. Continuing to verse 15, but if it is a question of words and names and your own law, look to it yourselves, for I do not want to be a judge of such matters. So, in a way, let's take a look at how this, how this kind of reflects on but the, what Galileo is thinking. So, the Roman Empire is actually a very postmodern civilization. It does not destroy conquered peoples or cultures, rather instead chooses to absorb them. So in a sense, to learn them and adapt them to, to their own culture, instead of just coming in and saying, hey, you're all Romans now, you'll practice Roman language, Roman culture, Roman worship. No, they choose to say, okay, live and let live, as long as you're loyal to us, we'll let you do as you please. So that was one of the things, reasons why the Romans were very different as an empire. And then we see the kind of Gallio's statement about, I do not want to be a judge of such matters. And in the way, this helps. This kind of reflects on Pilate's, Pilate's address to Jesus' accusers, both in Luke chapter 23 and in John chapter 19, where Jesus says, quote, if it's a matter of your own law, judge him yourselves. That's, in other words, Pilate's saying, that's, and Galileo, that's not my job. <laughs> if you want me to judge religious matters, I'm a secular official. Religious matters belong to the religious authorities. So, to Pilate and Gallio is also he says he says quote this is your own law that's an internal dispute I'm not gonna I'm an outsider I'm not gonna step in and take try to take judgment where I don't belong. So this is where we see even after the even after he drives them away and the Greeks are trying to beat up the ruler of the synagogue says quote hey if it's a if it's a religious matter it belongs to the religious authorities that's not my job. This is rather interesting considering today the. Like how we look at the states, looking at how we view the state nowadays. I mean, they say the state. Da, da, da. Ah, so sorry, just going down my notes. So this is where we people get to the idea of the separation of church and state. This idea of, of trying to put a this idea of trying to put a wall between state and church or religious and secular authority is actually, in a sense, a very older one. But for us, looking at the the talking about the separation of church and state goes back to a letter written by Thomas Jefferson to a group of Baptists in Danbury, Connecticut. He expresses his, his support about in the First Amendment about the Establishment Clause, saying, quote, I contemplate with sovereign reverence that act of the whole American people who declared in their legislature we should have make no law respecting an establishment of religion or prohibiting the free practice thereof, thus building a wall of separation between church and state. Now, the problem is that, that people take that 
read that and they think, oh, it's all, it's all, that means Jefferson didn't want the church to mess with the state, that the religion needs to be separated from the government. But like a lot of the people, including the revisionists today, have taken that completely out of context. It says, in fact, the historical record says, according two days after he sent the letter, Jefferson attended a church service conducted in the House of Representatives. It's a rather, rather interesting situation that people don't include that in the history lessons sometimes. But just interesting to see how they, how the, the the whole separation of church and state has been taken completely like out of whack. But people trim it to fit their own agenda. But we see, in a sense, Gallio and the Roman authorities are actually very much practicing much more the true the true state of it or the true mission of separation of church and state. And that's what we'll see. Looking at, okay, whoop, pardon me, I lost my notes for a quick sec. There we go. So looking at the, so in this case, looking at the church and state, kind of breaking that down, the church, of course, being the body of Christ, but also being symbolic of, some, of a spiritual authority in the United States, versus the state, meaning the government that we elect, it's the secular authority that's not religiously based, and each of them has their own area of power and authority as per God's design. Going through the Truth Project, they talk about the, looking at God, looking at the, look at the religious side and the secular side, looking at Say, looking at God and man, leaving the God, you and God individually, then the family and the church. And on the other side, we have labor, the state, and the community. You know, each of them goes from the personal level to the corporate level, and God make, has a place for each of them. But that when we don't respect that, that's when things get out of whack. So, for example, looking at God, going back to the Old Testament, looking at Israel's leadership roles, I've done a blog post on this. This looks at the, how God called specific people to specific roles for their time and for their lives. Where, for example, the three leadership roles in Israel's time were, there was the prophets, who were like the social critics and God's messengers to the people. There were the priests, who were the religious authorities and modeled the relationship with God for everyone. And the kings, who were the secular rulers who modeled rulership. And but things only get out of whack when, when people overstep their boundaries. For example, in 1 Samuel 13, Saul oversteps his authority as king when he chooses, instead of waiting to, for Samuel to offer a sacrifice, Saul goes on head and offers it himself, basically taking the role of a priest as well as a king upon himself. And that was something that, uh, that's rather tragically, that the, the pagan kings did, and that shows how Saul, in a sense, wasn't truly following God or did not have a, a heart to follow God like later kings would. And so he, in a sense, followed the human example instead of the divine instruction like he should have. So the whole, pace, the whole purpose behind separation of church and state looks at how the state should not interfere with the church just as much as the church should not interfere with the state. So looking at how this is modeled, looking at, say, looking at church history now, we see how originally the church is separate from the Roman authorities, sometimes being even persecuted by them. But even, the, but even after the church is legitimized, we see things get a little wonky. Uh, a little weird, I mean, if you're not familiar with that terminology. So, for example, looking at the, looking at, for example, the church in later years, we saw under Constantine's reign, there's going to be a time when the church will actually have secular authority unto itself. This goes in Revelation. This, this is a theme that we see followed in Revelation chapter 2, when the, when the letters to the church is being written. The third church, I believe it's translated either Pergamus or Pergamum, that represents what they call the indulged church when Constantine started giving 
patriarchs, that is, pastors of important churches, the same authority as Roman leaders. We see this the kind of reversed in the, we see that's kind of going this other, the same way in the medieval church, when we see that the church is basically able to overrule secular authorities, and that's when we see the Roman Catholic Church rise to an unprecedented state of power where even emperors or kings answered to the church or the pope. And that was, well, that was an imbalance on one side. But then we see on the other side, we see in the more recent years, we saw, for example, from the Protestant Reformation onward, we see kings and queens like uh, Henry VIII, for example. He, he breaks off from the English church but forms his own church with himself as the leader. So it's now, the, then later on with the, the fascist and the communist governments of the 20th century, we see it tip, the balance tip the other way, where now it's going to be the secular authority trying to overrule religious authorities, and in some ways, in, in some ways we still see that battle raging today even in our own country. So now we see, so yes, the tipping, tipping back and forth, back and forth, so the balance seems to be out of whack, so how do we get this back on track? Well, honestly, if, if something's wrong with the design or if it's the way it's implemented, go back to the designer. What does God say about how the church should operate? Well, let's see, looking at both the Old and New Testament, there's some examples of this. Going to basically the main the main thing about this is that we see that the people are honoring God first and foremost. So we see the first going back to my namesake prophet Daniel chapter three, when we see the golden image being set up in Babylon, and says anyone who doesn't bow down and worship this image is going to be, well, basically face a gruesome, horrible death. And we see Daniel chapter three. Three of the Roman, three of the Babylonian officials who are Jews—that is, Daniel's three friends, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, or by their Babylonian names, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, as they were called—take a bold stand of faith and proclaim that they are going to stand by God and they are not going to bow down and worship this image because that's worshiping an idol, and God calls us not to do that. And so the king says, "I'll give you one last chance. You guys either bow down or you're going to be be cooked alive." He says, "Quote." We're putting our trust in God, King. We're gonna, we're not, he's able to save us from their punishment, but even if he doesn't, we're not going to bow down. So in that case, they take a very brave stand for, them, for, for the Lord in their, in their own way, and God honors that. And then we see in Daniel chapter 6, Daniel himself faces a similar test, where in Daniel, the famous account of the lion's den, the Persian king, who now ruling Babylon, is tricked by his advisors, who are jealous of Daniel, and the Bay pass a law that basically bans anything but state-approved religion. And so Daniel has three choices. One, he can stop praying for a while. Two, he can start praying in secret, so he can like, be publicly keeping his keeping a reputation of going along with authorities while secretly maintaining a relationship. Or he can, three, continue to pray as he has, risk arrest, but honor God first and foremost above the government. He goes with the third option. He gets thrown in the den of lions. God saves him from the lions, and he comes out. And the government makes, makes the, basically the government says, "Quote: Anyone who tries to condemn this law, tries to condemn this God, that's not going to happen anymore." So then again, we see another example of looking at the words from the words of Jesus in Mark chapter twelve, verse seventeen. The famous saying about, render unto Caesar what is Caesar's, and unto God what is God's. So where Jesus is, there's a question where his opponents tried to, he tried to make him trip up in his own words about paying taxes to the government. If Jesus said, yes, pay taxes, some Jews might see him as a traitor because they hated paying Roman taxes. 
But on the other side, if he said no, they couldn't say, oh, he tried to incite rebellion. Rome, take him out. But very cleverly and very very wisely, Jesus says, show me a coin. Whose image is that? Uh, Caesar's. Okay, so Caesar wants money? Give him money. If God, God asks for your hearts, give him your hearts. So in that sense, Jesus is saying, yes, if the government's being re- making a reasonable demand or making reasonable requests, then, give, then do that, but honor God first and foremost in your lives. And then we see the Apostle Paul later on in his own writings in Romans chapter 13, verse 1. He talks about, let me do that real quick. Ah. He talks about, let every soul be subject to the governing authorities. For there is no authority except from God, and the authorities that exist are appointed by God. Kind of reflected what we saw earlier in in First Samuel when David is sneaking into Saul's camp and one of his men tries to kill Saul. David says, don't do that. God put him in power. Basically, the implication was that only God had the authority to remove him, which he eventually did. And so the Apostle Paul, and even his own writings, possibly writing from jail at this point, he says, quote, to, the fellow, to his fellow Christians, quote, if God put these people in power, then as long as they, they, they basically try to work with them. But of course, the, the same implication is what he's drawing from the, the words of Jesus, as long as the government is not... Hmm? Oh, thank you, Keefing. Anyway, so as long as the as long as the government is not trying to work against God, then tried to work with them. After all, because Jesus said, "He's not against me; is for me. He's not against us; is for us." But so, looking overall at the back of the main point, so the church and the state each have their own places in God's design. That's that's a given point. However, we also see that those who are, we also see that sometimes people try to throw the design. That sometimes in our fallen world, the design that God put in place is not always. Like everything else, it gets twisted out of shape. And that's where we see those people, some people try to have the state dominate the church, the state dominate the church to work the, the will that way. And then sometimes perhaps the church tries to dominate the state when we get out of line with what God has called us to. And that's when our ministry is affected. But looking at, so looking back at what we saw, point number two, those who seek to interfere with the church, like we see with Satan, or, his, or his, the people he manipulates as his chess piece, chess pawns, have some sort of agenda. In this case, the Jews were taking Paul before the before the Roman authorities, trying to discredit him. Perhaps not in, 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 much in the eyes of the Roman authority as much as in the eyes of the people, trying to influence the people who were listening to Paul's message and trying and trying to make sure that his ministry did not affect as many as he possibly could. But so, the, then see the Roman authorities say, "Well, hold on. There's going to be a time and a place. For, there's a time and a place for this and." This is not the right. This is not the right authority to judge the, such a matter. And so, in a sense, looking at how the Romans themselves, even as non-believers, understood that they did not have the authority to interfere in religious matters. That if this involves God, then the secular authorities are not the ones to answer to that charge. That mean, what I mean is that they are not the ones to judge the case. So, in that case, looking at what we see today. Looking at how the church is being trying to be influenced by the by the, the either local authorities or the community around us or even by the authorities in high places, we are called by God to do what is right. If it's if the government is working within God's design and parameters, then we should try to work with the government. But if the government turns against that, then our first and foremost, while we still try to minister and preach to the government, our first call is to render unto God what is God's. So. 
as believers, we have to make a very we have to take a very serious choice. We look at we have to be prayerfully consider what we do, but ultimately, when it looks to what what's going to happen in our communities, God is ultimately in control, and He is the one who will ultimately decide what's going to happen. But we are called to be faithful to the purpose and to the calling that He has brought us, that He has brought into our, our lives.